Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Creation Podcast, the show where we discuss the science that confirms scripture. I'm your host, Trey, and our guest today is Dr. Frank Sherwin, ICR research scientist and zoologist. Thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. We're glad to have you. Uh, So Frank, bees are fascinating insects. Of course, we often just think of the fact that they sting, and uh, but they also provide us with honey and they have a role as pollinators. Uh, it's a really broad topic and there's no way we can cover everything in just the short amount of time that we have with you. But I'd love it if you could tell me what you know about these creatures. How many types of bees are there? So when we classify in biology, we go class, order, family, genus, and species. So at last count, and these are numbers that can, are, are just approximate, there's about 4,000 genera of bees. Wow. Now that means about 20 to 25,000 species of bees. And worldwide, we have about seven families of bees. So there's a lot of bees out there, all different kinds, and all designed to do what they do very, very efficiently. Wow, that is a lot of bees. Uh, that's, that's incredible. These bees don't all serve the same purpose, right? Um, what are some of the more common kinds and, and what do they do? Well, when people think of bees, they always think of the honeybee as being the most common. And not surprisingly, the honeybee is the most common kind of bee. Good. Now, the genus species name, the title in science, we call it Apis multifera. Apis means bee. <laughs> and then mellifera, the mella means honey, and the fera means to carry. So this is a very descriptive uh, phrase or a title for the typical honeybee in a scientific language format, Apis mellifera. And so they, we also have the European dark bee, and we have, of course, the popular bumblebee mm-hmm. as well. So those are just three of the many kinds of bees that are out there. Okay. Uh, what about some of the rarer bees? Um, do you, can you share with us some some of those kinds of bees that maybe our viewers or listeners may not have heard about? Oh, well, there's plenty of bees out there that nobody has heard about because with twenty to 25,000 species, you'd spend the rest of your life trying to uh, determine those different kinds of bees. But probably one of the most rare bees out there is what we call Franklin's honeybee. Now, Franklin's honeybee is extremely rare. It's found here in the continental United States, but it's only found in a small portion of southern Oregon hmm. And Northern California. Now, that was back in 2016, so the chances are that this particular species of bee is probably no longer around. Really? Okay, wow. Fascinating and kind of sad. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, Could you explain maybe what would have happened to to cause this particular species to to not be around anymore? Well, there's a number of uh, facets and and problems with bees. For example, there is a mite, a very small arthropod that can get into a beehive and cause problems, or individual bees themselves, because a lot of bees are individuals. Majority of bees do not live in a hive. Mm. And so this particular mite can cause problems. There are also pesticides out there. Pesticides are all-encompassing when it comes to arthropods for example, the insects. And so they kill the bad insects as well as the good insects like the bees. And so there's a number of facets. Could be weather patterns. It could be a number of things. Okay. Well, thanks for the explanation. Still a little (laughs) sad, but now we know a little bit more. Yeah. 
All right. So uh, you did say that not all uh, bees live in hives. They don't all live in colonies, but most of them are individual. Uh, but let's talk about bee colonies. Um, how, how do those operate? Well, bee colonies are a wonder of God's living creation. They are just absolutely incredible how they are able to work and produce the 100 to maybe 300 pounds of honey every year. Wow. Now, that's in your typical bee colony and people who raise bees, the beekeepers. Now, a typical colony has about 60 to 70,000 bees. And God has designed the bee colony to have three castes or three parts to it. Now, the first one, of course, is the queen bee. Now, the queen bee is really amazing. She is brought up from the pupil stage to be fed a special nutritious kind of honey called royal jelly. Now, this royal jelly is honey, but it's packed with nutrients such as amino acids and, and special kinds of fats and all. So this pupil stage of the queen bee grows and grows until she's a little bit larger than the worker bees or the drone bees. And then she is chosen to produce the eggs that will later become the pupa. And she just becomes an egg-laying individual. Well, that's the queen. But also, there's the worker bees. The worker bees are the females, and they do, like it says, all the work. They build the nest. They go out there and they forage for the honey and the pollen. They do all the work that needs to be done. There's even air conditioning bees that stand at the entrance of the hive and beat their wings to cause a circulation of air so that the wax doesn't melt. Wow. It's really quite amazing. They'll just stand there or, or there and beat their wings and cause the air to circulate. So that's the worker bees. And they, they do everything that needs to be done to keep that whole industri industrious hive humming. And then, of course, the last one is the drone bees. Now, the drone bees are males, and the males simply uh, help to reproduction for the female. And that's all they do. And so there's only several hundred drones, mm. and then the one bee, uh, queen bee, and then, of course, 60 to 70,000 of the worker bees. Wow. But it's very, very efficient the way God has designed the hive to operate. Wow. So a question that I have is, how is that, that queen bee selected? Uh, like, is there's not a voting process in place, <laughs> yeah. surely. Uh, is it just, it's just they pick one at random or? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say how they choose uh, one pupa to become the queen, but it does. And then they put all of their efforts into feeding that one pupil stage, the royal jelly, and giving them just the, the queen bee, the ability to grow and mature into wow. the queen. That's fascinating. Uh, kind of makes you want to think, although I don't actually want to be in a beehive, it kind of makes you want to see what's going on on the inside there. Uh, all right. Well, uh, so we've talked about, you know, the honey aspect of things a, a bit. What is, what is the bee's role in pollination? I know they're not the only pollinators. Uh, and you hear from, from pop culture, of course, that like bee populations are failing. And if they fail, then we won't be able to pollinate anything. Uh, what is the bee's role in pollination? How important are they to that side of things? 
Well, it's been said by zoologists and entomologists out there that a full two-thirds of the crops, at least here in the continental United States, uh, need the bee as a pollinator. And so that uh, translates into things like almonds and broccoli and and, uh, pumpkins, apples, and then non-food crops such as um, the cotton crop. And so bumblebees are very important, for example, in pollinating alfalfa. Mm. And so all of these crops are needed with the bee in mind. So the bee is what helps to pollinate these these crops. It's it's frightening to think if all the bees were killed off, if all the bees disappeared, what would happen to the food uh, foundation of the United States? Now, back about 20 years, there was an apocalyptic prediction that the bee population was so declining that pretty soon we wouldn't have any bees. Mm. Now, thankfully, that didn't occur. And as a matter of fact, within the last couple of years, they're seeing a rebound of the bee population. That's good. Now, what caused the bees to uh, decline to such an extent in the first place about a couple of decades ago? They're not sure. They think it might have been what I mentioned, those mites or a viral infection, pesticides, parasites, things such as that. They're not sure. But thankfully, we can thank the Lord that the bee population is coming back from the brink. Okay, that's that's awesome. That I had not heard that. That's very encouraging. Uh, so let's go back to, to honey a little bit. Um, I know that not all bees make honey. Um, what purpose do other bees serve other than making honey and pollinating? Are there bees that don't do either of those things that just exist and live their lives? Right. So a very small small minority of honeybees actually live in the hive as we just covered. And 70%, 70% of the 25,000 species of bees live underground. Wow. And so a number of them, a vast majority, are native bees that are solitary and don't form hives. And so those bees we don't really think about because they're just part of the ecosystem. And so when it comes to honey, honey is an amazing, amazing compound. It's a sugar compound. It's very nutritious. And get this, they have found honey buried with Egyptian mummy that was still fresh. Wow. And I don't know how true that is, but I think it is because there's really nothing you can do to corrupt honey. Just keep it enclosed and it can last for a long, long time. And we have this evidence from Egyptian mummies. So it has no expiration days. You can leave it it in your pantry as long as you want. It'll still be good. (laughs) Yeah. And it'll granulate into sugar, but then Mm. you just heat it and it's no problem. Okay. Wow. All right, so these 70% of underground bee populations, uh, what purpose could there possibly be for them <laughs> under under the ground? Uh, what purpose are they serving? Yeah, so those bees are just part of the vast ecosystem, the foundation, and a lot of insects are the foundation of uh, the food complex that we have here. And so they are, are part of the ecosystem, and they do what they're designed to do by the creator, and that's about all that we know. That's about it. So there's like these noble honeybees and these pollinators. And then there's just these, uh, yeah, <laughs> these under this other 70%, <laughs> other, the majority who aren't really, uh, aren't really producing a visible thing that we can see yeah. and buy on our grocery store shelves. Yeah. All right. Well, I have heard 
maybe this is true. Maybe this isn't true. I remember it from my elementary school days about this, uh, complicated like bee dance uh maybe maybe i'm crazy uh have you have you heard any of this is there is there validity to this concept of like bees communicating with dance it is utterly utterly amazing as a matter of fact one evolutionist said just two years ago among the most sophisticated and uh, and complex of all non-human communication systems is the dance of the honeybee okay and there are several dances the honeybee does to communicate with the rest of the workers in the hive. If a forager, and they call them forager bees, are out there and they find a group of flowers that are very, very nutritious and, and are need, needed because of the honey and the pollen, then they have to fly back to the hive. Now, that group of flowers, for example, may be out somewhere around a quarter of a mile away or more. Wow. So one of the th amazing things about these foraging bees and all bees in general that live in the hive is that they are able to go out a quarter mile, maybe even a half mile or more, and find their way back. Now, navigation is incredibly important for that. How do the bees navigate to find their little hive uh, from a quarter mile away? It's really amazing. Mm. But they go out there, and they'll find some of these flowers and all, and if the food is nearby... The forager performs what is called a round dance. Well, the round dance of the bee is just what you would expect. She goes clockwise in a round dance and while the rest of the hive watches her. And they watch her intently. While they're watching her do the round dance in a clockwise progression, then she turns around and does a counterclockwise progression. And she does this time after time again. So what is she telling the rest of the bees who are watching her? She's saying basically that pollen and nectar are nearby. Wow. So that's the round dance. However, there's another dance that the bee does that is called the waggle dance. Now, the waggle dance is more sophisticated, more detailed, and I really can't explain it sitting here, except to say that one part of the waggle dance has the bee going in a straight line. Now, if she does the waggle dance, moving her body, you know, kind of wiggling it uh, in a short distance there in the hive, that means that the, the flowers, uh, the flower patch or whatever is a short distance away. Conversely, if she does the waggle dance for an extended period or extended portion of the hive, that means that the flower patch is, a far, is far away. Wow. And so that's all part and parcel of what they call the waggle dance. And the forager uh, has to do it precisely so that the other bees know what's happening. Now, more entomologists are finding out that this waggle dance is more sophisticated than they realized <laughs> because a portion of the waggle dance is, they think, perhaps is telling the bees who are watching the quality of the flower wow. patch. Well, in my opinion, they should have picked a better name than the waggle dance. That sounds like <laughs> something from the 70s. I'm going to be honest. But uh, that that is fascinating. Uh, it the fact that these insects can communicate like that, I mean, probably communicate better than humans do, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, one researcher said a few years ago, and I quote, these are high, high, highly intelligent creatures, mm -hmm. end quote. And in 2005, biologists were stunned to realize that bees can recognize human faces. 
That wasn't figured out until the 21st century. And in 2017, Science Magazine wrote of, and this is the phrase they used, and I wanted to share this with our viewers, unprecedented cognitive flexibility of bees. Wow. Unprecedented cognitive, that is thinking, uh, uh, flexibility of the bees. That was said in 2017. A zoologist said bumblebees cannot just copy others, that they can actually improve upon what they're learning. Now, you mentioned about people learning and all mm -hmm. that. Well, to improve upon what you're learning, that's almost what you would attribute to people, right. not the lowly bees. So speaking of bee intelligence, they have realized that bees are so intelligent, but with a very small brain. The brain of a bee, and they've dissected it out, is about the size of a grass seed. Wow. Now, a grass seed is just a little bit of nothing. Mm -hmm. And so a bee having the size of a, a brain the size of a grass seed, that translates to about only a million neurons. Now, a million neurons is not very much. So how is it that bees can... Uh, recognize human faces, have this unprecedented cognitive flexibility, improve upon what they're learning with a brain that only has a million neurons. Well, more researchers began to do work in the field of entomology and bees and in, in specifically, and they realized that it's not so much the number of nerve cells, but how the nerve cells are wired together. Mm. And the way that they're wired together is incredibly sophisticated and detailed. And so don't just think of, well, bigger brains mean you're smarter. Right. No, there's, there's nothing really to that. It's how they're wired, how they're put together. Now, this flies in the face of evolutionary naturalism that says that evolution is just a random process, natural selection, whatever that is, uh, random mutation, genetic mistakes. None of that points to the creative des design of the bee, particularly when it comes to the wiring of the brain. Wiring is something that requires engineering and intelligence. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, nothing is left to chance when that bee brain was put together, and it wasn't put together by time and chance and natural processes. Wow. Uh, that is fascinating. That's a very small brain, um, I, I can't imagine. Uh, so you said that, you know, evolution can't, can't really uh, explain this kind of thing. Do they at least try? Uh, what, what do they say about it? Well, basically, they talk about complementary evolution complementary evolution or co-evolution. And that sounds like a neat phrase, except it's empty. It doesn't mean anything. Mm. Basically, and I'm not denigrating the evolutionists, but I just want to make it specific and very, very clear that co-evolution, complementary evolution, is not a scientific explanation. So to say that bees and flowers, the angiosperms, uh, evolve together and they call it co-evolution, well, that's not an explanation. It doesn't, that doesn't tell me the origin of the angiosperms, the mm -hmm. flowering plants. It doesn't tell me the origin of bees. It just says that bees and flowers are together. And we as creationists would say, absolutely, bees and flowers are together because flowers need the bees and bees need the flowers. It's that entire system involves an irreducible complexity there. You can't have the bees without the flowers 
And you can't have the flowers without the bees or both systems would, would fall apart. That's correct. And according to the fossil record, bees have always been bees. Evolutionists want to say that bees evolved from a wasp-like creature, but we know that bees, and, and to f get a bee fossil was really difficult mm. because they don't have the bones that we attribute to like fish or dinosaurs. But we found enough insects in the fossil record that we can say without hesitation, insects in this case, bees have always been bees. Wow. Well, uh, that's fascinating. Do you have any any other interesting facts about bees that you want to that you want to share with us? There's another thing about bees which is absolutely incredible, and that is, you know, when you look at the eye of a bee, you find these various facets, dozens and dozens, hundreds of these facets. Each one of these facets is called an omatidia. Omatidia is a functional part of the entire eye of the bee. Now, God designed the omatidia to see <laughs> in the ultraviolet light. Wow. Now, we as people cannot see in the ultraviolet light, but bees can. And there are structures, there are parts of flowers that we were just talking about right. that have something called nectar guides, special structures that we cannot see as we enjoy the aesthetic value of flowers and enjoy their smell and all that. Bees are not interested in that. They're interested in what they can see in the ultraviolet range, these structures I just mentioned, within the petals of the flower. Wow. That's called nectar guides guides. These nectar guides do simply that. They guide and direct the bee to the nectar. And so they can see that in the ultraviolet range. And the shapes and the lines of the nectar guides are very, very specific and help the bees to achieve their purpose and their function. Wow. It's not even just like the brain. It's the eyes, the, the flowers having all of the, like, I've never even heard of nectar guides. And uh, you need all of these very specific, minute things to work together from the beginning. Otherwise, it just doesn't work at all. Exactly. So, it, like you say, it's an irreducible complexity. We look at the individual bee. We can see its ability to see in the ultraviolet range. They can recognize human faces. They even know the concept of zero. And they know that uh, numbers can be applied to uh, special units and structures. So wow. we're finding out more and more about the bee. And we can see that it is complex from the very beginning. Well, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Sherman. When it's been a pleasure having you on the show. And I want to thank all of our viewers and listeners. You can find this podcast on YouTube or wherever else you find podcasts. And I've been Trey, and this has been the Creation Podcast, and we'll see you next time.